for the observance of uh, your table, one of the sacraments that you are commanded the church to observe. We thank you, Lord, that it is a time of refreshing and a time of renewal. And it is a reminder of the work that you did on the cross in giving of your body and bearing our sins in your body on that tree. And Lord, we thank you for the blood that is represented in the communion. The blood that was shed for our sins, the blood that granted us forgiveness of sins. So, Father, I pray that as we partook of the Lord's table, that we are uh, refreshed. We may not feel it emotionally, but Lord, it is a spiritual uh, refreshing that has uh, eternal consequences. So, Father, we thank you for this table. Now, Lord, I pray this morning uh, for our church. I pray, Lord, for uh, your grace to be with us. Lord, I pray for any of our members this morning who are uh, struggling against uh, besetting sins, uh, whatever they may be, uh, that, Lord, we continue to struggle against our uh, sin nature, but not give in to those sins, not throw in the towel and be given over to them. But Lord, help us in our struggles against uh, besetting sins, and all of us have besetting sins. Lord, help us in our struggles against besetting sins. Lord, perhaps there's some here this morning who uh, have worries and anxieties, and, and Lord, we pray for them this morning that um, they look to you, look to your word for comfort, that they receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives who who comforts us, who is our comforter so that they receive that ministry. And Lord, that they receive encouragement from other saints and also from your word and how uh, to alleviate our worries. And that is trusting in uh, your sovereignty, trusting in your providential hand, knowing that uh, your hand is all over every aspect of our life. And Lord, because of that, we have no cause to worry or to despair. And Lord, we pray for uh, those who are perhaps having a hard time on their jobs uh, with co-workers or with supervisors or with just the nature of work, period. Lord, you created man to work, to work to your glory. Uh, working itself is not a curse. It is the fact that work became drudgery after the fall because of sin. But Lord, even for us as believers, even as we deal with work and dealing with uh, working around uh, unholy people and in unholy conditions, Father, uh, strengthen us to, to trust in you to get us through each workday, to look to you, to work for you, to work to your glory. After all, Lord, it's not our glory that we're working for. We're not just working for a paycheck. But Lord, work is worship. Work is a, a part of uh, what you created us for. And Lord, we worship you even in how we work. It is not the nature of our work that matters, Lord. It is how we work. Do we work with a sense of, of, of purpose of glorifying you? 
and bringing glory to your name and, and being a godly example to our, our co-workers and to our bosses and even to our company and even to our families that rely on uh, us to work. So, Lord, give us a good theology of work. We pray, Lord, for our, our parents and grandparents in here that you help us as we shepherd the hearts of our children and perhaps grandchildren, that we do so in a way that brings you glory. And Lord, I pray this morning, uh, all of us have things that concern us that we don't always tell others. But Lord, you know them all too well. And Lord, I'm reminded of the Psalm, Psalm 121, which is one of our favorite passages of, of scripture. The fact that, Lord, you help us as we seek you. Lord, the psalmist says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. It says, Lord, that you will not allow our feet to be moved. That you who keep us would not slumber. Lord, you who keep Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our shade at our right hand. And that the sun shall not strike us by day, nor the moon by night. Lord, you provide us with around-the-clock protection. Lord, you shall preserve us from all evil. You shall preserve our soul. You will preserve our going out and our coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. Lord, we will always preserve your saints. Though evil may come up against us, you will preserve us. You will protect us from ultimate fall, from an ultimate fall because of evil. And Lord, may we be comforted by those words of scripture this morning. Lord, we pray continually for our sister churches, uh, Anderson Bible, with Brother Bob, uh, helping him and uh, the elders leading their congregation. Grace Fellowship, Brother Carlton and the elders there. Uh, Phil Moser at Redeemer Church and the elders there. And Christian Fellowship with Brother Anthony Cook and here at the Living Church. Lord, that we continue to shepherd your flock well. That we continue to be faithful in pastoral ministry. It can get discouraging uh, sometimes. But Lord you are faithful. And cause us as men to continue to be faithful. To lead your church. To shepherd your flock. Lord there is nothing more beautiful and more glorious than the local church. The gathering of the saints as I was saying earlier uh, this morning. It is so precious Lord for the saints to gather. And worship our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sitting right now, reigning and ruling and interceding for us and acting as our advocate. And being pleased with the work of his church, which is his body. And Lord, I pray for the preaching of the word. That you may illuminate the truths that we're going to hear this morning about repentance the nature of repentance, and that all a Christian's life is one of repentance. 
Lord, may you be blessed this morning. And may we praise you. And Lord, may my preaching be pleasing to you. And may we hear attentively to what you have to say to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Ezra, the 10th chapter in our last sermon series on this book. How God restores, renews, and rebuilds his church. And one of the ways God restores us and rebuilds us is through genuine repentance. And that is our sermon this morning. So we turn our attention to the 10th chapter of Ezra. And this comes on the heels of last week when we learned about the intermarriage of some of the people in Israel with the pagan nations and how uh, Ezra was indignant about that. He was very upset. He tore, uh, he plucked out some of his hair and some of his beard and he sat down in anguish because of the great sin of God's people of intermarrying with pagans. So looking here at chapter 10, it says here that Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly and the leaders uh, spoke up said who was a uh, chicania he says we have trespassed and the word trespass you see the word trespass to, to trespass against the lord means to be in essence unfaithful uh, to god that's what the word trespass means in the hebrew so you see the word uh, trespasses especially in the old testament uh, think of being unfaithful to God. So that's what it means to trespass. So it says we have trespassed against our God and we have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. According to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath and Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Je uh, Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judea and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all this property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. 
It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this manner and because of heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, We have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly gathered, I'm sorry, answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we're not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this manner. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those of our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshulon and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And as the priests with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter. From the first day of the first month, they finished. I'm sorry, rather by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Then it gives the names of the uh, from the priest and then the names of the Levites in verse 23, then also of the singers and then all the others of Israel begin at verse uh, 25. Then it says in verse 44, all these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. May the Lord bless his word this morning. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the father of the Protestant Reformation. He, uh, the Reformation formally began when he nailed what was called the 95 Theses, uh, which was basically a list of questions and propositions for debate uh, with the Catholic Church because it was a protest against the Catholic Church. That's where we get the word uh, Protestant from. So on October 31st of 1517, which was uh, 504 years ago, uh, Luther had nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. And the first two of these theses contained his central idea. And uh, one was that God had intended believers to seek repentance and also that faith alone, not deeds, would lead to salvation. And Theses 1 states this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, from Matthew 4 and 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So in essence, Martin Luther was saying that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance because Christians have the mark of sin in them. 
So the life of a Christian is to always be turning away from sin. I got a few quotes here from some uh, of the Puritans and the uh, Reformers on our repentance. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, God who has made a promise to late repentance has made no promise of late repentance. And though true repentance is never too late, yet late repentance is seldom true. In other words, you know, you have people that say that a person can make a deathbed confession, so to speak, but that is not always guaranteed to happen. Thomas Brooks also said elsewhere that it is not the falling into the water, but lying in the water that drowns. It is not the falling into sin, but lying in sin that condemns. The believer should always repent. And that is so true when you think about it. A true believer will not lie in sin. A true believer will continually repent of his sins and not just lay there and allow himself to go into sin. Martin Luther said, when a man is humbled by the law and brought to the knowledge of himself, then follows true repentance. For true repentance begins at the fear and judgment of God. And he sees himself to be so great a sinner that he can find no means how he may be delivered from his sin by his own strength, endeavor, and works. So Luther is telling us that repentance comes after being humbled by the law and we see our own helpless state and we go to the Lord in repentance. The Puritan George Swinnock said about hastening to repent after sin. He says a sheep may fall into the ditch and defile himself, but he hastens out of it as soon as he can. But the swine or the pig chooses a dirty place, wallows all the day long in the mud and mire. A saint may fall into sin, but he hastens to recover himself by repentance. A sinner lives in it day and night. So he talks about the nature of repentance that a true Christian always repents, never wallows in sins. So what does the Bible say about repentance? Repentance is a one of those mega themes in scripture. Remember, a mega theme is a theme that appears throughout the thread of redemptive history in scripture from the beginning books of scripture all the way through until the end of scripture. And repentance is one of those mega themes in scripture. Uh, in 1 Kings 8 verses 47 uh, through 50. It says here, when they sin against you and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take captive to the land of the enemy far and near, yet when they come to themselves, that's basically repent, in the land which they carried away captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. 
And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which you have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all the transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have. And this is actually the prayer of King Solomon. It was a prophetic prayer. This is a prayer of dedication uh, to the temple because Israel did get taken over by those nations and they did cry out to God in repentance and God brought them back into their land. Ezekiel 18 verses 30 through 32 says this about repentance. Ezekiel writes, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent. That iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So you see in that passage right there, God called Israel to repent and turn. Because that is what repentance is. It is a it is a turn. He says, turn from all your transgressions. Cast away from you all your transgressions. God says, therefore, turn and live. Another passage here, Matthew 3. Jesus at the onset of his earthly ministry. Said in Matthew 3 and 2, as it is recorded, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, in the book of Mark, Jesus' first recorded words were, repent and believe the gospel. So Christ himself called men to do what? To repent. To turn away from sin and turn to God. Jesus said again from this time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 4 and 17. So the message of Christ began with repent, turn away. Luke 13 and 3, Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And I was just teaching on repentance when he was uh, talking about the the tower of Siloam that had fa uh, failed and killed people and people, uh, someone asked him what would happen to them. And Jesus said, you repent unless you perish the same way. So he was talking of the nature of repentance in Acts 17 and 30. We see repentance here. Where Paul says, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked, 
but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That is the message of the gospel. Even in the book of Revelation, Jesus called the church that had lost its first love. He said in Revelation 2 and 5, or 2 and 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left rather your first love. This was the church at Ephesus. In verse 5, God told them to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. So we see from the Old Testament to the New, the call to repent. So repentance is a very important theme in scripture. Now you have two types of repentance. You have false repentance and you have true repentance. And Paul gives us a lesson in this in 2 Corinthians when he was uh, scolding the Corinthian uh, church. Um, But he was thankful for their repentance in response to his letter that he wrote to them. He says in 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he defines godly sorrow. He says in verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrow in a godly manner. What diligence is producing you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? What fear? What vehement desire? What zeal? What vindication? In all things, you prove yourselves to be clear in this manner. So Paul showed them that True repentance bears fruit. And what kind of fruit did it bear in this passage? It bared clearing of themselves. It bared indignation. Indignation means being righteously angry at sin. It produced fear. It produced zeal. It produced vindication. So Paul was saying that true repentance bears all of these things. But false repentance or remorse, which we were talking about in our sermon here, remorse doesn't bring forth repentance, or being sorry because you did something is not the same as repentance. So our big idea is that uh, genuine repentance, rather, it involves contrition over sin, covenant keeping with God, a change of mind, heart, and direction, and confidence in the hope of the gospel. So let's look at our first principle here is repentance produces contrition of sin. Contrition is a a contrite heart or spirit. It is a bitterness 
Contrition is a brokenness over sin. That's what it means to be contrite, to be broken over sin, to be bitter about sin. David said in Psalm 51 and 17, he says, Lord, a sincere and contrite heart you will not despise. God does not despise one's heart who is contrite, who is broken over sin. Isaiah 6, 6 and 2, God says, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And who trembles at my word. Ezra felt brokenness over the sins of God's people. And you look at the passage here. It says that he mourned for a while. In the first six verses it shows that Ezra had mourned. And he had to be encouraged by Shekinah. What did Shekinah tell him? Be of good courage. And do it. Because Shekinah saw, he was one of the leaders of the people. He saw Ezra's grief, his contrition over this sin of intermarriage. So he sought to encourage the man of God and say, be of good courage. He says, arise for this matter is your responsibility. We are also with you. Be of good courage and do it. Because he was so grieved. And it says in this passage that the people wept bitterly back in the first verse. Very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him for Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. This reminds me of what happened with the uh, apostle Peter. And I think it's Matthew, the 26th chapter. You know, Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And Peter said, no, Lord, not me. And Jesus says, when that cock crows three times, you will betray me. And what did Peter turn around and do? He betrayed Christ. He says, I do not know this man. So the record in Matthew 26 says this. I'm getting at verse 71. It says, and when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came and said to Peter, surely you are one of them for your speech betrays you. Then he began to uh, curse and swear. Saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And the scripture says, So he went out and wept bitterly. That wept bitterly is Peter repenting. It is brokenness. It is contrition. It was a demonstration of genuine heartfelt sorrow and that's how genuine repentance looked so when you see this passage here in Ezra where the people wept bitterly they were genuinely sorrowful 
for committing this grave sin against God. And so what is the application in this? Uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4 and 3 said that true repentance is like that of a plow breaking up hard soil. He says, break up the fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. And Peter Williams in his commentary on this passage said, just as the hard ground remains full of thorns until the plow has bitten deeply into it, so the hard heart needs to be broken with the tears of contrition so that the seed of forgiveness might enter. So Jeremiah was talking about how repentance must be in a heart that is plowed, that is not hardened. Because a hardened heart will not repent. A hardened heart will not weep bitterly. You can you contrast Peter's betrayal of Christ with Judas's. Judas, when he had given the coins over to those Roman soldiers, and Christ, you know, subsequently had been crucified, he gave he gave Christ over to his betrayers. And uh, after Christ was crucified, what did Judas do? Judas ultimately committed suicide. He regretted what he did, but he did not repent. He did not turn away. He regretted it. He had sorrow, but he did not have true repentance. And he ended up hanging himself as a result of it. Again, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. And that is the big message here with contrition over sin. Our next message is genuine repentance involves covenant keeping. And why is this important? Because number one, sin breaks covenant. Sin breaks covenant. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 and 2 says this. God told Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he will not hear. Sin breaks covenant with God. And a covenant with God meant binding oneself what it means to have covenant with God is we bind ourselves to God by an oath to him to do something the people in Ezra they were under the Mosaic covenant the covenant of Moses and they had to bear the curses regarding marrying pagans so you see in verse 3 they didn't make a new covenant instead it was a renewal of the Mosaic covenant regarding intermarriage with pagans look at verse 3 it says now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law so they didn't do a new covenant because they already had a covenant in place which was the mosaic covenant So it was a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant regarding intermarriage 
with the pagans. And the fact is, when we sin, we bear the consequences of our sin. As we talked about last week, and as we talked about in Bible study with Israel and their rebellion against God in the, in the wilderness in uh, the book of Numbers. In the Old Testament, it is laid out for Israel in the Mosaic Covenant about the, the consequences. God talks about it in uh, Leviticus, the 26th chapter. Leviticus 26 and 14 says, but if you, do not, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my, my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. Then he goes on to say, what he does to them. And whatever God promised that he would do to them, guess what? He did. It happened. Why? Because there were consequences for breaking covenant. Deuteronomy 7 and 3, God told them this, nor shall you make marriages with them, the pagans. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And then all the blessings and curses of this in the book of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28. So the covenant curses were to call the Old Testament church to repentance. But under the covenant of grace in which we're under, the chastening of God brings trouble as a consequence of our sin. That's what it does. It brings divine chastisement because we're not under that Mosaic covenant. All those curses you see in Deuteronomy 28 were for Israel. That was for Israel at that time. That was the covenant that God made with them as they got ready to possess the promised land, which happened in the book of, of Joshua. So God pronounced all these blessings. You, you'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the field, all those things. You know, I know prosperity preachers may say, uh, quote those things for us, but no, they were for covenant Israel at that time in that context. But there were consequences also to them disobeying God and breaking covenant with him. So when we sin against God and break our covenant with him, God does allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin. He does. And he does this as a disciplining in hopes that we would return to him in repentance. That's the ultimate goal of the disciplining because of our sin is to lead us back to God, not to drive us away from him because we're mad at him. No, when God chastens us, that chastening is to lead to repentance. We come back to God. We have godly sorrow over our sins. Not because of the consequences. Because if you come back to God because of the consequences, that's not true repentance. True repentance is coming back to God because you sinned against him. Not because he allowed you to live out those consequences. So if a person sins against God and they suffer the consequences and they come back to God or so-called come back to God because of the consequences they're not turning to God. But if they come back to God because they know that they sinned against God, that they broke covenant with God, that is how true repentance looks. And God sends trouble to warn his covenant people of their waywardness. 
and cause them to repent. While men and women draw breath, the Lord calls them to repent and turn to him. Do you know that God is constantly calling unbelievers to repent? The call to repentance never ceases. Never. Jesus came speaking what? Repent. He was talking to unbelievers. He was calling Israel to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he went to heaven, guess what? His apostles did the same thing. They called people to repent. And we continue to do that to this day. We call sinners to repentance. Why? Because that leads to salvation. So the call to repent is always there. So what is the application of this principle? That God will also allow his new covenant church to feel trouble as a means of disciplining us for our sin. And when God does this for us, we should heed the call and turn back to him. That is how repentance looks. Amen. Principle number three from this passage. Repentance leads to change of mind, heart, and direction. And that is key. This is one of the key points of repentance. In an illustrative way, repentance is a change of heart. It is a change of mind. It is a change of direction. In the text here that we have in front of us, Ezra 10, we see 113 men saw where they violated their covenant with God. And they had to put away their wives and their children. We see that in verses 3, 8, 11, and then verse uh, 44. In verse 3, make covenant to put away all these wives and the children, those who have been born to them. Verse 8, same thing. Those who ever will not come three days according to the instructions, they had three days to do this. They had three days to come and to assemble to do this thing. Then verse 11. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord to do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. And, of course, the last verse of this chapter. This had to be a very difficult act. That had to require a change of mind. The Greek word for repentance is metaneo. From Matthew 3 and 2. That's what a change of mind is. And a change of heart is metamolomia. Which is found in Matthew 21 verses 29 and 32. Okay so you see repentance and change of heart. Matthew 3 and 2. Then a change. I'm sorry mind 3 and 2. And change of heart Matthew 21 and 29. And then you have a change 
of course of life, which is metanoia. We see that in Matthew 3 and 8 and then Acts 20 and 21. These three things go together for genuine repentance. So change of mind, change of heart, and change of course of life. Repentance is basically doing a 180. You have a change of mind about that sin. You have a change of heart about that sin. You have a change of your course of life concerning that sin that you are repenting of. And that change is not always instant. It's not always instant. But there is always a change. Though it may be slow, it is still a change. It reminds me of, you know, I was on the aircraft carrier, which is the largest of the naval ships. And aircraft carriers take anywhere from one to five nautical miles to turn around, to make a 180-degree turn. Because you're going against the, the currents of the ocean and just the massive size of those ships. You can't just turn it like that. You know, like you see on cartoons or whatever. No, it does not happen like that. It's a slow, steady turn. And it could take one to five nautical miles for a ship to turn around. An aircraft carrier, especially because they're, they're very large. And repenting is the same way. It is a plodding path. It is something we constantly do, constantly putting off sin until our consciousness gets to the point where the temptation of that sin doesn't affect us anymore. And sometimes that's a lifelong struggle. But always remember, as Martin Luther reminds us, a Christian's life is one of repentance. We're, we're constantly seeking God. We're constantly asking God to help us turn away from this sin, to not give in to the temptation of this sin. To not give in and just give up and just throw in the towel. That is how it looks. And so this thing that these people had to do to give up their wives and their children. This is this required a radical shift in attitude uh, toward sin and a willingness to depart from sin and to turn to God. If you think about it, they had to give up their wives. Their foreign wives. And they had to give up their children. This required a radical shift in the minds and hearts and wills of these 113 uh, men. Though it was only 113 of them, uh, even one person was too many. It was only 113 men who, who did this, but one man was too many. Stephen Cole, in his sermon on this text, uh, said this. He says, but as Paul said with reference to tolerating sin in Corinth, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So in other words, 113 men may not have seen like, oh, that's, that's just a small number of people. I mean, come on. One man marrying a pagan was one too many. And that's how we are to look 
at sin. Like, it's, 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 you know, oh, it's just one little thing. It's just one little sin. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Any sin is a big deal to God. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, a little leaven, leaven's the whole, remember, leaven represents sin, uncleanness. You said in the context of the church, letting an immoral man remain in their congregation without doing anything about it. Paul's saying, don't you know that one man who's living in unrepentant sin can corrupt the whole church, the whole fellowship? And that is the nature of sin when it is not repented of. If the problem had not been confronted, then guess what? It would have spread even farther. It, it would have been more than 113. Could have been 200, 213, 1,000. So you stop the problem. It would have gone farther. And so since the Jewish exiles who had returned were so few in number, to allow this sin to continue would have effectively diluted their distinctiveness as God's covenant people. In God's righteous anger, guess what he could have done? He could have destroyed those people until there was no remnant, but he didn't do that. He could have easily destroyed them if he wanted to. He had every right to. Why? Because they had transgressed against him. So Ezra believed that it was necessary to break up those wrongful marriages. In spite of the fact that God, uh, you know, hated divorce, said that in Malachi 2 and 16. So Stephen Cole says this, the fact that he fasted and prayed before acting on this argues that he did the right thing, although it was not easy. He said to break up these marriages meant separating fathers from their wives and children who would not be sent back to their pagan roots, which was not good either. I think that Ezra believed that breaking up these marriages and restoring purity to the nation was a lesser evil than allowing mixed marriages to continue and thereby threatening the spiritual purity of the nation in both the present and the future. So uh, either way was going to be difficult and painful. Do you let them remain married to these pagan women and it spread to even more men? Or do you make the hard decision of cutting it off right where it is? Had those men not done that, then guess what? That decision would not have needed to be made. But it was something that was necessary that had to be done for the preserving of God's people. And the point is this. This is a lesson that we can learn. Sometimes our sins result in problems for which there are no easy solutions. Think about that. Sometimes our sins can put us in, in, in situations where there is no easy solution at all. And we don't want to be in that type of situation. But when we have a change of heart, mind, and direction, forsaken sin, it's often difficult, but it is still necessary. So we can see from this passage that, man, sometimes sin can put us in some, in some very unenviable positions. But we have to make very difficult decisions that we shouldn't have to make. And that was the case with these men who had married these foreign women. They put uh, Ezra in a very 
uh, tough position, very precarious position. Do you allow them to stay? Do you allow them to have more children? Do you allow more men to marry these pagan wives? And therefore uh, diluting the spiritual purity of this nation? Or do you cut it off where it is and learn the hard lesson of sinning against God and the consequences of it? I will err on the side of uh, what Ezra did, uh, weighing the evidence. So the application of this principle is that uh, a change of heart, mind, and direction is the evidence of genuine repentance. And that God wants that change of direction from us when we repent from wrongdoing. When we repent, one of the fruits should be a change of direction about that sin. It is no use having good intentions and not doing anything about it. A lot of people have good intentions, but they do nothing about it. They don't repent. They don't humble themselves before God. But that is something that we must learn and continue to do. Amen. And the last principle, principle four, repentance gives us confidence in the hope of the gospel. As painful as repentance is, and it's painful because it humbles our pride, it is for our good. It shows that there is hope in the gospel. Look at verse 2 again. When I read that, it stuck out to me, as they say, like a sore thumb. We have trespassed against our God. We have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now. There is what hope in Israel in spite of this. Man, that's good. There's hope. Because there's hope, there's time to repent. Because there's hope. There's always hope. If there was no hope, then guess what? There would be no need to repent. If there was no hope. Which means there's no change. But God loves us enough to not leave us where we are. He loves us enough to not leave us in our hopeless state. God loves us enough to offer repentance. Matthew Henry said, our sins are sad, grievous, rebellious, treasonous, hurtful to the saints, but there is hope through repentance. And this is part of the gospel message. There is hope in Israel in spite of this. Saints, there is hope in our life. There's hope in our house and our homes. There's hope in our church in spite our sins. And this is the confidence that we have in the gospel. The gospel has the power to save. The gospel has the power to set free from the bondage of sin. The gospel has the power to turn away the wrath of God. That is the hope of, of the gospel that we have. The gospel has the power to give us a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. We're not without hope. Think about unbelievers that you know. 
They feel hopeless. They do. That's why they go to drugs. That's why they go to social media for affirmation. That's why they're miserable. And trust me, they are. They may put on the front like they're so happy, that they're so joyful, that their life is just so wonderful. But those of us who know the nature of sin knows that an unbeliever is miserable. They're miserable. They have to mask it. Why? Because it's a charade. They have to keep it going. They have to let people know, I can live my life without God. They may not say it with their words, but that's in essence what they're saying. They're miserable. They're grieving. They're rebellious. They're sad. They're lonely. Why do they have sleepless nights? Why do they medicate themselves with alcohol? Because they're miserable. They don't have any hope in their life. But guess what? There is hope in Christ through repentance. It's hope for the believer as we repent of our sins, but it's also hope for those who are unbelievers, who are still in their sins. The gospel provides hope even when there's a great sense of guilt before God there is hope of forgiveness there's hope of restoration there's hope of renewal there's hope of mercy there is hope of grace and that is the gospel message that we proclaim to unbelievers because I'm going to tell you people they don't have hope they, have, they may have, through God's common grace, they may have moments of joy, or I won't say joy, they may have moments of happiness. They're very fleeting. They are. They're not lasting. It's, it's, it's almost like a drug. They, they're looking for the next high. They're looking for the next moment. That's why one of the mantras of the culture is live for what? The moment. Because that's all they're living for. They're not... Living for eternity, they're not thinking about where they're going to spend eternity. They're only thinking about what? The moment. What is now? Why? Because that's all they have hope in. They don't have the hope of eternal life. They don't have the hope of living eternally forever with God. In that mansion by and by. They don't have that hope. We as believers have to call them to repent. Turn to God. Not turn to God and your life will be better because that's not true. But turn to God and be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what we tell them. Turn to God. Renounce sin. Renounce worshiping yourself. Renounce loving yourself and turn to the living God and be saved. Repentance gives us confidence in the hope of the gospel. For these men who sinned against God, Shekinah said, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. 
Don't you know a lot of unbelievers just believe that they can't be forgiven? That's what they believe. That they can't be forgiven. That they can't do something to be forgiven. But we let them know that God has already done something. And he did it through Christ. That's how he did it. He did it. It's already done. The way it's already made. The debt has already been paid. Repent, unbeliever. If you have unbelieving friends, unbelieving family members, unbelieving co-workers that you have a relationship with, that you have built up some positive equity with, and you see, you know, they don't have to show it again, you know that they're miserable. What keeps you awake at night? If I tell you my children, my job, or something. What do you, what do you worry about the most? How do you reconcile that worry? How do you, how, how do you make that right? How do, you, how do you make it go away? Ask them those deep questions. How do you reconcile the worries that you have? Who do you go to? How do you find comfort? And you can lead them to consider their pitiful state. Lead them to consider how miserable or wretched they are. And that you can say, you know, I too am a sinner. As Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am foremost. You say, I'm a sinner too, but the difference is I'm saved by grace and you can too. That is what they need to hear because they're hopeless. But repentance gives us confidence in the hope of the gospel. Amen. Last thing I want to go over right quick. This is something from the Puritan uh, Thomas Brooks. He Thomas Watson, rather, he wrote a uh, treatise on the doctrine of repentance. I just want to read some of this right quick. Um, it says, what is gospel repentance? He says, it is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. And these are six special ingredients of true repentance uh, that Thomas Watson wrote in his book, uh, The Doctrine of Repentance. Number one, the first ingredient is the sight of sin. He says the first part of Christ's medicine is eye medicine. It is the great thing noted in the prodigal's repentance. He came to himself. He saw himself as a sinner and nothing but a sinner. He says before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself and that doesn't mean come to worship of himself but he must come to acknowledgement that he himself is a sinner if there's no sight of sin there could be no repentance number two he says the second ingredient is sorrow for sin he says I will be sorry for my sin the church father Ambrose called sorrow the embittering of the soul the Hebrew word to be sorrowful signifies to have the soul crucified. He says the sorrow for sin is not superficial. It is a holy agony. 
It is called in scripture a breaking of the heart. And then next he says, the next ingredient is confession of sin. He says confession is self-accusing by saying, look, I have sinned. Indeed, among men it is otherwise. No man is bound to accuse himself, but he deserves to see his accuser. When we come before God, however, we must accuse ourselves. Confession must be voluntary and it must be felt. It must be sincere and it must be particular. No man wants to accuse himself of sin. Why? Because of pride. But that is what it takes to repent. You must see that you're the problem. I must see that I am the problem. Next, he says, there must be a shame for sin. He says, he quotes Ezekiel 43 and 10, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. He says, blushing is the color of virtue. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face, Ezra 9 and 6. The repenting prodigal was so ashamed of his excess that he thought himself not worthy to be called a son anymore. Repentance causes a holy bashfulness. Next he says a hatred of sin. He says first there's a hatred or loathing of abominations. He quotes Ezekiel 36 and 31. You shall loathe yourselves for your iniquities. A true Penitent is a sin loather. To, to loathe means to despise. <laughs> he says it is more to loathe sin than to leave it. Christ is never loved till sin is hated. Secondly, there's a hatred of hostility. To discover repentance, there is no better sign than by a holy hatred against sin and then lastly Thomas Brooks says repentance involves turning from sin as we talked about he quotes Ezekiel 14 and 6 repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations this turning from sin is called the forsaking of sin just as a man forsakes the company of a thief or a sorcerer it is called putting sin far away so I hope that kind of crystallized what it means to truly repent and have genuine repentance we have a sight of sin we see it we have a sorrow for it we confess it we have shame for it we hate it and we turn away from it that is how repentance looks So as we close, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of sin is God calling me to repent of? What are besetting sins that we struggle with in our life? All of us have besetting sins. Besetting sins are those sins that we, we struggle against. Remember, a true believer struggles against sin, does not live in sin, does not give in to those sins. We struggle 
against it. Sometimes we trip up, but we get up and we keep fighting against it. So what are some sins that we struggle against in our life that we need to repent of? May God give us the grace to do that and not have remorse because remorse is not repentance. Judas had remorse, but he did not repent. Remorse is negative. It expresses despair and hopelessness, but it does not lead to repentance. A person may commit a public sin like a politician and get up in front of everybody and say, you know, I've done wrong by having this affair or whatever it may be. But does that mean that they repented? No. So we don't want to be remorseful. We want to repent. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is heavy upon us, but thank you for it. We need to hear from heaven this morning about the true nature of repentance and what repentance truly means. Well, all of us in here have besetting sins. Help us to repent of them, to, to hate them. To see them, to have sorrow for them, to confess them, to have shame for those sins, to have hatred of those sins, and to turn from those sins. And Lord, we cannot do this in our own power, but we can only do this by the power of your spirit who lives in all of us. So Father, help us to repent. And Lord, we pray lastly for those unbelievers that we know that we have equity with, that we call them to repent, that any unbelievers who may hear this message, as they look at their life, they look at the hopelessness that they have, that Lord, in your grace, you call them to repentance also, which leads to salvation. Lord, give us a godly sorrow for our sins and not a worldly sorrow. In Christ's name I pray, amen.